All right. Once again, good morning. Happy Easter. We're here. We made it through Lent. Here we are, Easter Sunday, the day in the calendar each year that for some about special clothes. Um, can be about kind of scary, weird bunny people at the mall that your kids take pictures with. I was never into that, but that's a thing. Um, day for many that features eggs and chocolate. And, of course, the day of the year considered most central and sacred in the Christian faith. It's the day that centers around this bold, illogical, mind-boggling assertion that the first century rabbi known as Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified on a cross by the Romans, did not stay dead, but rose again on the third day, releasing hope, spiritual power, and a living connection to God now available to everyone. It's a story that I know is likely familiar, at least in its essentials to many of us. And some of us might feel in our bones the genuine truth of it. We've come too far. We've seen too much in this life of Jesus-centered faith. We cannot help but boldly, gratefully proclaim, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Others of us, if we're honest, might feel a little more skeptical about the day. Perhaps we have no problem acknowledging Jesus the teacher, Jesus the prophet. We know he was a person who inspired multitudes and his wisdom, his commitment to nonviolence, his connection to the divine, the way he embodied love. All of these are sources of spiritual inspiration and life. But the assertion that he literally rose from the grave might feel more mythic than factual. And then some of us might feel somewhere in the middle, sensing on some core level a hope in the reality of resurrection but maybe feeling unclear about what to do with it, how to allow that resurrection truth to transform our own losses or, or the struggles that Deborah was naming, we feel in the world around us into some sort of new life. Wherever you're at, whether I've named it perfectly or not quite, I just want to acknowledge you're welcome here to declare again that you belong. That this celebration isn't just for those who are feeling the most joyful in the Easter hope we proclaim. It's not a party for the confident. It's an invitation for the curious, for all who resonate with the hope of possibility. That maybe, just maybe, in connection with the divine and one another, there might be more to life than we are totally aware of or could fully understand. So today I'm going to invite us to revisit this familiar Easter story with an encouragement to hold curiosity and a spirit of openness and join me as we see what new understanding, perhaps even new experience of faith might come. And before we look at this story afresh, I want to start by introducing us to a central character in it. I'm going to give you some background on this character first because I think it might help us consider the story through a different lens. Today's Easter text, that's actually the lectionary text that lots of churches around the world are talking about, is the account of the resurrection told in the first part of the Gospel of John, chapter 20. 
It's a story that follows the activity, not first and foremost of Jesus. He's not the protagonist in this story. Rather, in this part of the narrative, John's leading character is a she, a woman who the text names as Mary Magdalene. Likely you've heard of this woman, even if you haven't spent much time in church. She's been a popular part of uh, cultural imagination around the story of Jesus for a while. I'm like a music theater nerd, as I think a lot of you know. So I'm like Jesus Christ superstar. She's the ingenue who's majorly crushing on Jesus and laments through the rock ballad, I don't know how to love him, right? In the novel and movie Da Vinci Code, she is Jesus' secret wife, mother and uh, his, the mother of his child, embodiment of the sacred feminine. But none of these popular romantic traditions have much historical basis to them. I mean, who knows? Maybe Mary M. did have the feels for Jesus, because, like, I'm sure lots of folks did, right? But that's not something we can really document. Um, we, don't, we can't tell that from historical documents or the accounts in the New Testament. There's also been um, confusion through the centuries between her and other women who appear in the Gospels, some of whom are also named Mary. And because of these associations, uh, it can be popular to, um, to kind of assume that Mary Magdalene was a sex worker, um, though actually there's no place in the Gospels that names that. Um, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do tell us that Mary Magdalene was one of the women who had traveled with Jesus from Galilee and helped care for his practical needs. Luke adds that Jesus had cast out seven demons from her once, so that's interesting. Um, all of the Gospels put her at the foot of the cross when Jesus dies and at the tomb on Easter morning. Still, more than 2,000 years after these stories were originally written, it's only been in very recent years that there's been some meaningful breakthroughs in the study of Mary Magdalene. Turns out it's actually important to have women doing biblical research because when they do, guess what? <laughs> they discover some interesting things about the women in the Bible, things that scholars in the past who were overwhelmingly male seem to have missed. Perhaps these female scholars are more careful to look past patriarchal assumptions and dig deeper than the guys who were doing the work before. Sorry, guys, but I think we all know it's true. Um, so one of these women doing this important work today is Elizabeth Schrader-Polser, and her focus of study as a biblical scholar is on Mary Magdalene, understanding more about who she was and what she meant to the early church, to the early, earliest Christian tradition. And as I was reading about some of her work this week, I learned that one of the most fascinating recent areas of study around this Mary is actually connected to the second part of her name, Magdalene. Now, for centuries, the view that many have just assumed to be the truth is that Mary was called Magdalene because she was supposedly from a place called Magdala. Anyone who's visited the Holy Lands, like in our lifetime, may have visited a, sea, a site on the Sea of Galilee. It claims to be this place. But recent examination of some of our earliest documents from the period closest to these events really draws this assumption into question. First, there's the fact that we have no evidence that during Jesus' time, there was actually a town called Magdala in Galilee. 
That name doesn't show up on any of our maps or documents about the area until at least 600 years after Jesus' life. And then there's the discovery that some of the earliest church Christians, the church fathers, as they often called them, who wrote about the Gospels, they clearly understood Magdalene not to speak of where she was from, but of who she was. Magdala was not a place, but a description, a title. You see, the word Magdala in Aramaic actually meant tower. And some of our oldest sources, church fathers like Jerome, clearly understood Mary's name to be a description of her importance. Many of us know the story of how Jesus renamed one of his closest followers, a fisherman he met named Simon. But Jesus added to that the name Peter, which meant literally rock. On this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. Well, it turns out Simon Peter may not have been the only disciple with a powerful new name that spoke to the early church of their significance. Alongside Simon the Rock was Mary the Tower. Interesting, right? So this is the character, this Mary the Tower, that I'm going to invite you to notice and to consider as we read this story and wonder together what this tower might teach us today. Starting at the beginning of John chapter 20. Now very early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been moved away from the entrance. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them, they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Then Peter and the other disciple, commonly understood to be the author John, set out to go to the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple, John, ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent down and he saw the strips of linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who had been following him, arrived and went right into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the strips of linen cloth, but rolled up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, came in. And he saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. So the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she bent down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting with Jesus, where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman... Why are you weeping? Mary replied, They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Because she thought he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus replied, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene came and informed the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what Jesus had said to her. So this is our Easter story. Following the experiences of whom at least some have called Mary the Tower. I'm going to take some time to notice a few things about what I observe about Mary in this story and what seems to set her apart from the other disciples. And then we can think about what any of that might mean for any of us today. So the first thing I notice that makes Mary unique in this story is that Mary is in touch with her longing. Mary's in touch with her longing. It's Mary's longing that is the catalyst for this story in the first place. Something gets her out of bed before dawn, in the dark. Something draws her in the dark to the lonely tomb. Now, in other versions of the story, Mary comes with a small group of women to embalm Jesus. But in John's version, they've already treated the body. They've already dressed him with myrrh, aloes, spices, wrapped him in cloths on Friday before he was buried. Perhaps she's coming that day to do another round, to touch him, to tend his body further. Or maybe it's something else that John understood brought her there. Maybe just that middle-of-the-night, early-morning restlessness that stirred a longing simply to be near the place he was laid. As the story unfolds, Mary's longing carries forward the action. Her longing compels her to run for the others when she finds the stone rolled away. Her longing keeps her there, even after the others walk away. And it's the longing of Mary that seems to be felt by the sacred. Not everyone seems to respond to Mary's longing with compassion. I'm sorry, but Peter and the other unnamed disciple commonly accepted as John, they come off pretty dense to me here. Not super helpful guys at this moment. They seem more focused on their foot race, like who can get to the tomb fastest, I got there first, than who brought them and how is she doing? Mary has run to them. She's woken them up before the sun's risen. She's brought them to the grave. She's shown them that Jesus' body has disappeared. And how do they respond? They don't seem to even notice her or her emotion at all. There's no words of comfort, no embrace, no thank you for alerting us to the situation. They simply show up, see the empty tomb, and seem to walk away scratching their heads, believing something has taken place, but exactly what they think at this point isn't really clear. They're certainly not rejoicing at the good news of the resurrection. But while these like bros are caught up in their experience, ignoring Mary, the divine is moved by her longing. The divine concern comes from two different places in the story. First, from the pair of angels who mysteriously appear only to Mary. And then from Jesus himself. All of these sacred voices express their care and compassion as they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? They notice. They care. 
they're moved because Mary is in touch with her longing. The second thing I notice about what makes Mary unique here is that she's persistent. Mary is persistent. She's not just walking away saying, huh, that's weird. Oh, well, shrug emoji. No. (laughs) She's active. She stays active. She runs for help. She runs back there after the guy. She searches when they walk away. She pleads with anyone she encounters. She stays. Yes, she's weeping. Yes, she's scared. She's grieving. But she persists. Mary is persistent. And that brings me to the third thing I find provocative about Mary in this story, is that she engages with mystery. Mary engages with mystery. Now, I don't know if you all are noticing, but Mary's encountering some weird stuff in this story, right? I mean, the tomb with the stone rolled away, that is certainly mysterious, but it gets stranger after that. Because after the guys leave, Mary pokes her own head in the tomb and encounters these two angels. And she doesn't fall over in fear. She doesn't say, like, oh, my gosh, you're angels. It just kind of makes you wonder if she even realized who she's supposed to be talking to. But whatever she's thinking about these strangers who appeared out of nowhere, she doesn't shut down. She doesn't run away. She engages. She answers their questions. She's present to them. And this interaction with the angels, that's just the prelude. After answering the two mysterious beings, she turns and finds another. And this person asks her not only, why are you weeping, but who are you looking for? Mary doesn't realize that the very person she's been looking for is the one asking her the question. She's now encountering her longing, but it's different than she expected. He is different than she expected. The encounter with the risen Jesus itself is very mysterious. Mary sees Jesus, but she can't perceive him. He's somehow transformed. Her eyes don't recognize him. She mistakes him for a gardener. But the encounter is also intimate. And it's this expression of intimacy clothed in mystery that seems to bring recognition. He speaks her name, Mary, and something profound registers. She understands something in her heart that, and spirit that are different than what she perceives with her senses. Rabboni, Mary responds. It's an Aramaic word that our text says means teacher. But it's not a word we're generally used to. It's not rabbi, which is generally what Jesus' followers would say when they wanted to call him teacher. And actually, this word is also a subject of the recent scholarship by people like Elizabeth Schrader Pulser. Because it turns out that many of our earliest manuscripts we have of the book of John in ancient Greek, they translate this word differently. They don't say, which means teacher. They say something more akin to a word in Greek that would be like a human teacher, but a teacher who's divine. Something more than just a person teacher. Some versions of this passage even say Rabboni means Lord. Why does any of this matter? 
I think it points to the fact that the earliest people reading these texts believed that Mary was having an aha moment, a moment of spiritual clarity that neither Simon Peter nor John had had when they approached the tomb. She is registering that Jesus is no longer dead, but he is here, somehow alive, but also transformed. Teacher, but also now Lord, in a new kind of way. And as a result of all these movements, Mary being in touch with her longing, Mary persisting, Mary engaging with mystery, Mary too experiences transformation. She's moved from grief to joy, from despair to hope, from need to abundance. She started the story running to the other disciples for help, but she ends it running off to help them by sharing what she has seen. On this Easter morning in this garden encounter, Mary is built into the tower of faith that it seems the early church looked to and honored. She becomes an apostle which in Greek means a sent one. Not only that, she is Jesus's chosen apostle to the apostles. So what does all that mean for us here at Haven on this Easter Sunday? In recent months, including throughout this season of Lent, I've had the opportunity to have a number of conversations and spiritual discerning experiences with folks in this community around what people long for or are feeling stirred by for our community in this season. And I'll be sharing some of what I've been hearing and discerning and discussing with other leaders in the weeks to come. But one of the themes that feels like an important focus this year for Haven, I'll name now, and I'll call it Growing in Spiritual Connection. Growing in spiritual connection. It might sound like a no-brainer to folks in a lot of faith communities, like spirituality is a core part of why you're here, right? But if you've been around Haven a little while, you've probably noticed we're kind of a unique group as far as churches go. We've talked through the years about trying to be a community that values safety and diversity and Jesus-centered spirituality and attempting at least to hold these together has meant we've tried to make a lot of space for wherever folks are coming from, just like we name in our opening prayer. And specifically, our commitment to full inclusion means we do have a number of folks in our community who've been hurt in other spiritual communities that have not included and affirmed their full selves. And they bring that hurt with them. And that's meant at times we felt cautious to know how to foster meaningful spiritual experiences in ways that would feel safe and open and powerful without triggering places of trauma and wounding. And while that care and concern, I think, is an important expression of love, I think we all still have a desire to find a way to move forward in establishing meaningful connection with the divine that can feel true to who we are as individuals and as a community and still be spiritually meaningful and powerful. To not allow our caution to keep us from opening ourselves up to something transformative and beautiful. We long to grow in genuine spiritual connection. And so this is one of the felt needs I think we've been leaning into throughout Lent with our Seeking Sundays that we've done here, as we've taken the time to pause some of our other Sunday activities, hold a more open stance of contemplation and listening. I think it's uh, part of why people are being drawn to Albany on Monday nights for this small group that Joanna and I are doing there around 
uh, engaging the theme of discerning God's presence together. And we're going to continue to look for more places and practices um, to lean into this theme throughout the year. But one of the ways I think we'll do that is, is this Sunday morning space is through some teachings around fostering an interactive relationship with the divine through prayer. We'll be looking at some different characters in our sacred texts, as well as examples of more contemporary life, so we can consider what developing an accessible, grounded, authentic to who we are in the cultural moment we're living in kind of prayer life that could look, what, what that could look like. And I'm calling the series Dialogue with the Divine. All that brings me back to Mary and her Easter story. In some ways, it might seem like it's not relevant to this topic of prayer, but I see it a bit differently. Because this moment that's being described here is a transition moment. It's not about interacting with Jesus as a human being interacts with another human. That's the kind of relationship Mary had had with Jesus before he was captured, before he was mocked, gruesomely lynched before her days before. No, this is a kind of interaction Mary's having with Jesus is something different. It's a new Easter kind of spirituality, the spirituality of resurrection. This is not interpersonal dialogue. This is dialogue with the divine. And so as we begin our own exploration of what a post-Easter spirituality might look like, I think Mary the Tower provides an important model. You see, towers are different than foundational rocks. Both are needed, but they serve different purposes. The foundational rock, rocks like Simon Peter, provide the steady base layer for things to be built upon. They bring stability to what's being constructed, but a tower serves a different purpose. A tower draws your eyes skyward, not to what's underneath you, but to what is possible ahead of you. It also orients you in the landscape. It helps you find your way. One thing I love about living in Berkeley is that for many parts of the Bay, right, you can easily identify where your home is. When I'm in San Francisco, I can look across the Bay and I can scan the skyline and I can easily find Berkeley. How? Anyone else do this? You look for the Campanile, right? The bell tower on the UC Berkeley campus, also known as Sather Tower, it stretches upward and it shows me the way home. Towers are sources of inspiration and orientation. And so it is. When I ponder this story and the role of Mary the Tower, this is a woman who has known spiritual trauma, friends. She has seen one of her closest friends sold, sell her beloved teacher and leader out. She's seen the other friends and followers scatter, even deny they knew him when their safety was on the line. But she, along with a couple other of the women who loved and followed Jesus, they stayed. They watched the whole brutal thing. They refused to look away while the life was crushed out of them. Mary was there, still physically breathing, watching the life crushed out of him, and feeling the life crushed out of herself, too. Friends, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago on that hill in Palestine that they call Golgotha. But I've had those moments of feeling my heart crushed inside my chest. Moments of violation. 
moments of terrifying medical diagnoses, moments of helplessness as a parent, moments of confronting the devastating impact of mental illness on a loved one, moments of absorbing the weight of terror for our trans beloveds when another piece of legislation passes limiting their freedom or the freedom of their parents to seek gender-affirming care, moments of holding so many difficult stories of pain and injury and loss that I have been given the honor of holding with many of you as well as many others. All of these heart-crushing experiences connect me with Mary Magdalene with the grief that she was wrestling with on that second night after Jesus had breathed his last in front of her. And they connect me with her longing. It was her longing that got her out of bed in the wee hours of that Sunday morning and drew her to the tomb. And I have felt that longing, too, even in the midst of pain and fear and doubt, to connect with something or someone beyond, some possibility on the other side of the painful present. It's what draws me, even in the midst of seasons of real challenge and heartache here, to this place, to this haven, in the hope that there is something more than sorrow to be known. And perhaps you understand what I mean. Perhaps you too have held sorrow, and perhaps you too, whether full of faith or full of skepticism, find yourself today drawn in longing for something beyond. For all of us who resonate with that, Mary the Tower is here, beckoning us to look up and follow her beacon. She invites us to let our longing be the starting place for our spiritual engagement and from there to persist. She invites us to stay present even as others shake their heads and walk away to continue with an open heart until we discover what we're looking for. She invites us to engage the mysterious, to be willing to talk to angels if necessary. Invites us to open our minds and hearts to what could be possible, to check our presuppositions at the door. Now, I don't think that means leaving behind our brains, but it does encourage us to experiment, maybe try some things outside our comfort zone. Perhaps her invitation is similar to something a a pastor I knew used to say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Mary invites us into all that, the longing, the persistence, the engagement with mystery, and speaks hope that we too can be encountered by the sacred in the process. We too can hear the mysterious whisper of our name by a divine voice who knows us intimately and cares about why we're weeping. We too can be built up into powerful markers of spiritual transformation that can be signs for others who need help finding the way. We, too, can be sent ones invited to speak the truth of what we've encountered in the mystery to those who also are longing for something beyond. This is the fruit of genuine spiritual connection. This is the good news, I believe, of Easter for all of us. This is the hope we're proclaiming when we say he is risen, he is risen indeed. We're proclaiming the hope, the hope that we are not alone that something more is here, and that something has the power to bring fresh life to us even after loss. May we receive the beauty and power of that hope 
just as Mary the Tower received it before us. Amen. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take some time to chat. We, God, we thank you for that story of Mary the Tower. We thank you for that revelation of her as a powerful spiritual beacon. May we hear, may we, may we see our eyes fixed on that tower above the skyline. May that be a source of hope for all of us. Wherever we're at, whatever we um, can understand about what this day means, may we find hope that we can be encountered and that that encounter can meet us in our deepest places of longing and bring us new life. Amen.